So if we think about like contrast training, how we're sort of pairing um, like a heavy activity, stimulating the nervous system, and then going into a jump to like produce more force. I've been playing around with like the complete opposite of that. So sort of not doing a quick jump, like holding a heavy yielding isometric and then sinking into the ground, like doing like a depth drop, but instead of just like a reactive jump, you're just sinking into it. Um, and I have used it in my classes and I've actually programmed it into some of the empower performance programming because I wanted to see their take on it. And nine times out of 10, the people that can't feel their glutes, like at the bottom of a squat and utilize that, that's when they tell me, oh my gosh, I finally felt my glutes. That was Katie St. Clair, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Hello and welcome to another show. Thank you so much for being here with us. In the last few years, or my last few years as a coach, one of the things that I've become more and more aware of, and I'm sure you've seen it in the type of episodes that are on this show, is getting into those physical and structural characteristics of athletes that work to determine their biomechanics. I remember many years ago hearing coach Dan Fichter talk about the idea that strength will dictate uh, what an athlete can actually pull off from a biomechanical perspective. So for example, if I'm weak and have no fast twitch outputs and my feet are broke, then I'm probably not going to have an elite sprinter stride length. In fact, it's just completely out of the question. So there's obviously some serious like strength and structural underlying principles that will dictate what we're capable of. We can take this even further to looking at joint alignments can I move particular joints? Are they reciprocal? Can my pelvis alternate? And am I stuck in anterior tilt? And what does that mean for my mechanics? Do my ribs move? Uh, things like that, things that you've heard on this podcast in the past uh, probably 50 or so episodes. We're getting more and more of these shows going. I'm excited to have our guest today, Katie St. Clair. She is a strength and conditioning coach out of Charleston, South Carolina. She has over 20 years of experience, and she is the creator of the Empowered Performance Program. Katie is a passionate coach, and I've really enjoyed learning from her and watching her accounts and social media. I love the way that she creatively presents her material, as well as having lots of interesting ideas that really makes my mind stretch and think. So Katie on the show today will be taking us through uh, an approach to forward pelvic tilt, breathing mechanics, abdominal, athletic abdominal function, 
uh, proper squatting and how that shows up in a variety of things, plyometric ideas, and a lot more. And all this coming from this inside-out perspective of the body, this perspective that really prioritizes the underlying function of the human body uh, as a priority. And that helps us to be able to serve or understanding that underlying function and all the things going on from a structural and a pressure-based perspective really helps us to serve a bigger bandwidth of athletes and help those that otherwise we may have had no idea what was going on when we saw them running so strangely. (laughs) So anyways, this was a really great show. Katie is so brilliant and it was wonderful to sit down and have a chat with her. So I hope that you enjoy this show as much as I did putting it together. Let's get on to it. Episode 279 with coach Katie St. Clair. Katie, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you here. Could you start for us by telling us a little bit about your background in sport and athletics and what led you into getting into coaching and and working in training and fitness? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast and um, it's, I've learned a lot from it. And so I'm looking forward to geeking out on all the stuff we're going to talk about today and having a little fun um, being able to chat with you. Um, So I from a background, just to go way back, because I think it's important in terms of context and some of the things we're going to talk about today. I started out in gymnastics really young, probably four or five years old. And um, I was short and I was built to be very muscular. (laughs) My body type just blended itself. My dad was a state champion wrestler of Louisiana. Like our whole family is built like this. So Um, I quickly kind of got into a very competitive side of gymnastics um, and ended up just really like having an obsession with movement. And then there was some unfortunate incidents. My coach passed away and I went through this kind of period where I was trying to continue on. But once you're at a certain level, you really need somebody to guide you. And I was in a small town. So anyway, I ended up stopping gymnastics around 15 or 16. And I luckily, because of my background, and I think gymnastics is kind of a, a really great way to develop a lot of skill sets that can lend itself to other um, areas of sport. So I ended up playing um, four varsity sports at a 5A high school. Um, and so I just like, I just wanted to experience everything. I hadn't done team sports and I was just super excited to do everything. And then, um, ended up going to Florida state and doing their athletic training program. And I got put with the football team. It was a year after they won the national championship and they had built this huge new stadium and it was just overwhelming to the point where it felt like I felt like I couldn't even be curious because I was put on the spot constantly and having to be right. And I just couldn't adapt to that environment. So I ended up, I stayed within my college, but I switched to nutrition and exercise science as like a dual degree. And then, um, cause I loved the biochemistry side of things. And then, um, I ended up as I got out of school and going into different avenues of fitness, realizing that I hated nutritional coaching (laughs) It was awful. Like I would love to just talk about the theory and the ideas and the physiology of what's happening in the body, but I really don't want to coach behavior change. And so that sort of led me into different, um, jobs where 
movement and the discussion of movement and the thought of movement and playing around with different types of programming and performance, I really just wanted to think about that. And so that kind of led me um, sort of to where I am today. I've been kind of all over the world and trained in different countries and trained in many different cities in the United States and now here working for myself. Um, And mostly, I would say, um, I train some athletes. I train a lot of ex-athletes. I train gen pop that want to perform in whatever their life goals are. And then um, I train a lot of coaches online because I teach. So kind of lends itself to that. So that's where I am now. Yeah, I was actually a, a sports medicine or athletic training major for two years. And the supervisors there just told me I should probably do something else because I honestly I look so disinterested <laughs> I think for me it was just it was just I wasn't to me I just viewed a lot of that as just um taping and, and ultrasounds and passive modalities I didn't really appreciate the biomechanics like I do now and no and I think if that was um that would have definitely made that more intriguing and engaging to me at that point so uh, that was um uh, that was definitely an interesting time have you, have there been any like really major shifts for you where you uh, like, like in terms of your thoughts on training that your framing of, of um, human performance and how that might've changed you? Yeah. So I would say um, when I moved to California, I took a job with a company called Axis. It was in Mountain View and um, they had a pretty rigorous um, sort of ramping up. So basically you took the job, they moved you out there, and then they put you through this, their own continuing education system. And within that system, um, it sort of was very skill-based. So sort of like, I'll do a row, then I'll do a row in a split stance, then I'll do a row standing on one foot. So all these ideas of sort of bracing the core and that functional type training, that was a big thing, you know, 15 years ago. And What I learned from that is that there is a huge need to sort of regress and progress and sort of be able to create this adaptability and skill level within people so that they can be successful in their movement patterns and in their performance. But I realized at a certain point that I was looking at everything from the outside in. So sort of how do I make my arm do this? And then if I practice that skill enough, it'll continue to do it instead of looking at it from the inside out as to why this may be difficult and what's happening more proximal that's affecting the distal. And so there was a huge shift for me, probably about, I would say six or seven years ago, where I really started to think a little bit deeper about, and I, and I wanted to understand like what is happening from a proximal standpoint that is it, but I couldn't figure it out. So I would see these patterns all the time and sort of be like, well, why is this person keep doing this? How can I change it? But just coaching it didn't change it. I had to alter the um, mechanics of their thorax and their pelvis and their rib cage to be able to create the change that was necessary. And so I think for me, taking more of an inside out approach was like a huge lightning moment for me. Yeah, I, I've... That's the thing that's definitely been um, every year I get more and more interested in that because as I and there's so much that I have left to learn, which is part of the reason I'm doing this podcast. And it's the more I learn about all the inside out mechanisms, it's kind of like you you have those athletes and they're doing something in a sports skill and you wonder why they, they continually are doing it like wrong or quote unquote wrong. And you try to coach or give them um 
I don't like internal cues, but I like trying to create frameworks where they can feel the the right way, I guess you could say. But then you realize, oh, wait, this, this athlete has really stuck ribs and they're stuck kind of in a forwardish anterior pelvic tilt and, and all these things that are not allowing them to do this thing that I hope that they can do. And so that that coming up alongside um, or working in tandem with a little bit more learning about motor learning in general has been really fascinating for me. And I feel like every time I do one of these podcasts, I just, there's a, now there's a new lens. I see that athlete I was working with under, there's a new option that can help them to achieve a better performance that, that like, as you said, it comes from the inside out uh, versus them finding a way to work around it, which athletes are really good at working around things. (laughs) Um, But it's just, it's, it's such an awesome lens to be able to look at athletes with. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, they're, they're creating compensations that are actually really genius. You know, it's there when you play a sport, it's not like you're sitting there thinking, how do I position myself to make sure that I have the range of motion that I need? It's more, what, how do I just allow this to naturally happen? And we lose that ability to naturally adapt to the movements because I think, frankly, within this industry, we've trained it out of people and we have to start giving that back to people and kind of reframing what performance means and what training for performance means, whether you are an athlete participating in a sport or just a general population client that wants to live a healthier life. I think it, the spectrum, it, there's no difference, really. It's just how much are you pushing to one end or the other and how broad do you want that spectrum to be? Yeah, especially once um, I've thought of movement and Andy Ryland, who was on the show, was the first person I think I've heard this idea from. But there's the training on the level of the um, the the human, the athlete, and the specialist. And on that base human layer, like we're all the same. You can be um, whether you're a star football quarterback or you're just um, an older general population client who just wants to move without pain. Like it's there's it's human level stuff on that basic level. Yeah. And so I think that that sometimes um, can be underregarded in the grand scheme of things. Oh, it's every single time I take a walk in my neighborhood, I just stare at everything, the trees, the, the way the rocks are, the seashells, like all of the stuff, because I think that gives you an appreciation of what the human form is. And so where creating expectations for people based on a society that sort of takes away the appreciation for our human form. We stare at computers, we stare at cell phones, we go to the gym, we sit on machines and we stare at our cell phones, like Mm -hmm. in unnatural light, like it's all (laughs) very weird (laughs) and contrived. (laughs) It's uh, (laughs) yeah, it's funny. um, In my uh, yard here in Ohio, we're we're trying to do a little bit of uh, permaculture type stuff. And even being at, uh, I was at Rafe Kelly's return to the source and, Washington state and it's on his uh, father's like family property and all the houses are like circles. And it's like, he talks about like versus everything you see, it's everything's square. Everything's rectangle, everything's sharp corners. Everything's just maximal efficiency. How cheap did it, how, how cost effective was it to make this thing versus um, seeing, like you said, you are looking at the seashell and I know I hopefully we'll get to the question on compression and spiraling. I, I hope we have enough time for that. So I, Absolutely, hear you. It's almost like so. Maybe you're saying too, like we can look at how, how um, I guess out of our element as humans, just in our general life, we are, and then you're also comparing that to how we often 
we'll do the same thing when we train humans in, in a gym or whatever. Yeah. So we're basically kind of dumbing things down a little bit for people. So there's sort of this, um, I see this, I, I don't know, social media is a bad place to get information, but there is sort of trends that you can notice. And I would say that there is sort of this trend of let me give somebody all the references in the world to help themselves organize so that they don't have to think mm. and, or, and, or put them on a machine, which has a lot of value. If you're talking about, um, more of like the metabolic changes, but when we're talking about neurological creating proprioception and ability to adapt and develop skills, I think that we actually have to give them the benefit of the doubt and take away a lot of those references and let themselves organize and learn how to move effectively. Because by taking those things away all the time and not making it a point to give them back, it's fine maybe to take them away at first to give them some sort of reference, but then you really want to get them moving as natural as possible so that when you coach them into a lunge or any sort of exercise, it's almost like their body just does it. It's just fluid. They're like, oh yeah, that's how I should exhale here. I should inhale here. I should pull this way because it just makes sense within my natural being. And I think that we're, we're sort of put your hand on this, put your foot on the wall, like organizing everything. Cause that's like our trainer want to control and make everything perfect, but movement isn't meant to be perfect. It's meant to be chaotic. And we need to respect that and give them tools to handle the chaos. Yeah. I, I like that. I, and I'm glad you brought that up. I know that's, um, I think that was one of the kind of later questions, that general topic. And I oftentimes like to go, um, what would you say? Like the, the flow of the show, I like to kind of go order to chaos, if that makes sense. Like it's like yeah. solid, uh, more solid questions and then more, a little more esoteric towards the end, but bring I would me love back. To say what? <laughs> What was that? I said, bring me back. Okay. Yeah, well, I have to bring myself back constantly. So I'm, I'm the master of it all. But no, I, I, um, but with that, maybe we can weave that into the flow of the conversation today. Sure. And so let's just start um, with this and in the, the realm of inside out training. Um, and I, I really am excited to ask you this question because I have several clients that I'm working with that, I mean, outside of like the Bill Hartman world and, and all the inside out type, uh, all the pressure systems and re reciprocity, like I would have had no idea three years ago, I probably would have made an excuse why an athlete is moving a certain way and just give them a drill to do or something. But now I realize that uh, several of the athletes I work with, they are jammed in this anterior tilt where they're not really reciprocal. And it's like, that's why they run like, <laughs> like, anyways, uh, I've, you, I've heard you use the phrase that you can't, you can't go where you already are in regards to anterior pelvic tilt. I'm sure that could apply to anything. Um, but how does being biased or stuck in anterior tilt impact someone's ability to move, uh, well, and then what explain your process to help them get out of that? Yeah. So, um, I think in terms of you can't go where you already are, that just would apply to any joint. Like if I'm, if my joint is more biased to IR, then I'm going to have less range to go into. So I'm going to have to find that range somewhere else. So when I think of like an anterior pelvic tilt, so you're a narrow ISA. So you're, um, let's just assume that you don't have perfect movement and you compensate to some degree. Then let's assume that your pelvis is also in a more narrow um, infrapubic angle. So in that position, we get more of an external rotation of the anomnus. Now, naturally, as I walk forward, I'm not going to, if I don't want to walk with duck feet, which is actually something 
athletes are very good at is turning back forward because we have to move and gait and move forward often. So I would turn my femurs back. So they're already in more relative internal rotation in relationship to the acetabulum. Now, if I were to dump my pelvis forward, I'm pushing my pelvis into that anterior tilt and allowing now to be an even more relative internal rotation. So then I go to try to actually internally rotate at the femurs and I'm already there. So I don't have anything left. So I'm in, you know, what 10 degrees of hip IR, whatever it is. Um, And I think that's where we have to pull them out of that orientation and pull the pelvis back underneath them. But it's not enough to just think, oh, I'll just give this person hamstrings and abs, because if I do that, that'll strengthen those muscles and it'll provide like the mechanical changes to reorient. But really, you have to think of it, I think, from a a deeper perspective. And we can go back to like the inside out what's happening at the thoracic diaphragm, because now we're in that scissored position. So the diaphragm above and the diaphragm below the feet, which now I know you're really interested in the foot diaphragm and the foot and the thoracic diaphragm are going to alter the ability for the pelvic diaphragm to do its thing too. So we have to reorient and we can use hamstrings and we can use abs, but we can integrate by driving um, changes at the foot changes at the thoracic diaphragm and using respiration and letting that guide us to neurologically create this like adaptive change all the way up and down the chain, if that makes sense. And I mean, you could get into the head and neck, but that'd be crazy. Like for now, I think Mm -hmm. you can just talk about, you know, the central parts. Yeah. The head and neck component fascinates me, but it also just would confuse me at this point to to get too far (laughs) into that. So I, I definitely understand that. Um, so where, I mean, maybe what I'm trying to ask is, um, well, let me go to what you said about the the feet. So you know, the foot diaphragm and the thoracic diaphragm. Could you talk a little bit more about um, that interaction? Uh, what, and I'm trying to put a few things together on where I want to go with this. Maybe I'll ask you this. So that person who is um, there in anterior tilt, their innominates or their pelvic bones are externally rotated, which causes, even if the femurs stay straight ahead, now they are relatively more internally rotated. So they're going to run out of range quicker. What does that mean for us? If we run out of IR range, so our femur range, IRs and end ranges faster than we would like, how does that show up in what we're seeing in squatting, jumping, running, those kind of things? Yeah. So you have to create expansion to have compression. So you have to be able to have enough range to produce the force to move forward or to move up or whatever the activity is. And so if you don't have that range, you're going to end up compensating to try to get it. And so that could be anywhere in your body. You could try to pull yourself back by dropping your sternum down so that you have a place to push forward to. You could um, extend through your low back above the pelvis to try to push yourself forward. There's all kinds of strategies. You could flatten your arch and go into not true pronation, but sort of a compensatory eversion to try to push yourself to the opposite side. So I think what happens is then we create these underlying compensations and those compensations are what lead to like low back pain, your hip impingement. This is where you're going to get those adductor strains the hernias that people are feeling, the, um, you know, hamstring strains when they're trying to reach out and gait because they can't get that swing phase. Um, there's just so many reasons, that, so many possibilities for 
um, creating compensation. And then the pressure management system's off. So then you can end up with pelvic floor issues, diastasis, all of those kind of leaks in the system, I guess, leaks in the hose. Yeah. One of the things, so I guess maybe just speaking on the feet. So if we, if we're in kind of stuck in IR and don't have anywhere to go with the femurs, we're tilted forward, like that would cause the feet to be um, pointed out more to try to pronate, but you're saying it was like, I mean, that would be the case or a case, right? Like a compensant could be a case or you could supinate. Yeah. Uh, you could. Su- so like if you're in a max IR mm-hmm. in order to get range, you could supinate and have tibial external rotation so that you can try to have somewhere to come from. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I have someone I'm working with who does that too, who is an anterior yeah. tilt. So that's, that makes sense to me now. It's interesting to think about that because my mind wants to go to just, oh, well, it, it's just usually one thing. It's only going to be one thing and it just, it yeah. wants to simplify it because I think I want to sound like I have the answer. So it's like, yes, it can only be. <laughs> there are no answers, but yeah, no, like out. you could do either. It just depends on how that person's adapting could be to, for their sport too, you know, cause yeah. you could see how like maybe a sprinter might go into more of like a supinated foot position. So they're kind of getting that quick recoil mm-hmm. off the ground because they're sort of missing the midfoot and they're just like hitting heel toe, heel toe, heel toe to make it faster, even though it's not really giving the recoil that needs to happen. That makes sense by going through the full, you know, supination pronation and then supinating off. Um, but I mean, you could speculate on a lot of things. It all just depends on the person sitting in front of you. You're not going to see a lot of sprinters that are like duck feeding it down the track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, probably not from a heel perspective. Like there's some who definitely are turned out and especially the good accelerators, but that doesn't necessarily serve them as well once they're a full upright running and they're definitely not hitting on their heels at that point. No. Like a duck. <laughs> um, so what going back to so just if someone generally has that though and it's causing whatever compensations are showing up um and from an inside out perspective i mean is the first thing always going to be something proximal like working on some something with the pelvis with the ribs with the breathing pattern where is typically the first route that you go when someone comes with that kind of presentation yeah so i typically every single person i work with needs just some foundation of where their rib cage and their pelvis needs to be in space. And that doesn't mean they're always keeping it there. And in fact, I'm pretty big on getting people to be able to get out of it and to get back in it a lot. So not keeping so much control in the system where everything is in a stacked position. Um, But they do need to learn the fundamentals of sort of allowing the diaphragm to dome up both the pelvic diaphragm and the thoracic diaphragm and using the breath to leverage that position. Because I do think that, you know, in our need to survive and breathe and manage gravity, like that is the number one inside out piece, right? So for me, I always would coach that. You know, it could be a lot of different ways, but generally I'll say somebody would be just supine on the ground and just learning how to breathe. And then as quickly as possible, allowing them to adapt that posture and go in and out of it as much as they can and then reciprocate it like the ER on one side, IR on the other, and sort of being able to get that reciprocal motion of the rib cage. Yeah. Would you say, um, are you familiar with the Gary Ward's cogs, like those cog exercises? I mean, that's kind of it, isn't it? Like the reciprocation and, um, that I think the breathing can fit with that as well. Yeah. I actually have never, I, I did his course, like his online lower body 
um, course, but um, I have never experimented with those cogs. And the other day, somebody said that to me because I was doing this pelvic floor motion. And I just always think of it as like, what, what is happening at the sacrum and what's happening at the rib cage and what's happening at the foot? And how can we like mimic the systemic ER and the systemic IR at each of those areas while we inhale and exhale? So I know that sounds kind of cuckoo but it's like, I can imagine that if I am good at supinating a foot while I'm inhaling and allowing my sacrum to counter nutate, and then I'm going, and I can like coordinate that motion. And I think that's sort of what Gary might be going for then, but I don't know that he uses the breath, but I like to use the breath. And if I can coordinate that, then it's kind of, um, creating a like a neurological change in the brain of this is just like the natural order of things. If that makes sense. Yeah. What's, so what's an example, um, just so I can put this to like a movement or an exercise. Cause okay. I, I understand fundamentally what you're saying. It's like, okay, if I can ER and I are these joints and breathe, I, I understand that, but I think I don't understand. I don't think I'm connecting this and I'm not like embodying this. Like I, I, in the sense, like, um, I think I learned sometimes, but like, Oh, I know what that would feel like. So could you yeah. take me? through? Okay. So I can give you a couple yeah. examples. Yeah. So, Let's say um, I lay on my back on the floor with my feet flat, okay? And I allow myself to take an inhale and slightly go back into an, a posterior tilt, okay? So I'm getting a little sacral counter-nutation. I can push into my toes, which will push me back and kind of tilt me under and take an inhale, and that's going to drop my um, or allow my rib cage to sort of do what it's supposed to in that moment. So when I exhale, I want to feel like all of the spinal curvatures are increasing. So if I take a big exhale and you can feel this now and you just exhale and let your chest come down, the curve in your neck is going to increase. Your sacrum is going to tilt forward. So the curve in your lower back is going to increase. Right. At that same point. If I'm on my heels, that's going to help generate that internal rotation, that increase of all of the curvature. Now I can do the complete opposite by going to my toes, tucking under and decreasing the spinal curvature by inhaling and allowing the chest to rise. So it sounds kind of weird, and but I do it with people all the time and it helps retrain the ability of the integration of the pelvic floor and the thoracic diaphragm. So another example that might be easier from like a strength and conditioning perspective. So if I have somebody go into like a split squat and they're going down and I do these in my classes all the time. So they're going down into a split squat. Let's say I'm doing like a contralateral reach. And as I go down into that 90 degree range, that's technically where I'm going to have a little bit more of the nutation of the sacrum and that internal rotation. So in that moment, I would have them exhale and sort of drive their knee forward. So they're driving pronation of the foot. And then as they come out of it, I can reach with the opposite hand. So an ipsilateral reach with that front leg as I come out of it. And I can even drive onto the toe and lift the heel and inhale. So I'm coming out of it, creating sort of an ER moment. So you can imagine like glute max mm -hmm. kicking on as my pelvis turns away from the femur. And then as I go in and turn towards the femur, I'm exhaling 
and creating that concentric activity. Does that make sense? So now I'm like integrating the whole movement with the breath. Yeah, the the integrating the movement with the breath, I, absolutely. And as you were saying it, I will say sometimes like going like trying to be the podcast host and then trying to follow the biomechanics and not getting yeah. like lost in that. And then I don't know what next question to ask. So I'll when I go back through it, that will make more sense. But I totally I I do understand from a general perspective. Well, first, as you said, feel. I really like that you said feel in the exhale. You're feeling like the compression. You're feeling the curvature of the spine. You're feeling the body compress through the process of exhaling. And then through the process of inhaling, you're feeling, I like I, Helen Hall, who's on the show, calls it the gift of notice. So I always try to think I love about that. Oh, yeah. It was such a good, like, so the best way you could put that. Yeah. The gift of notice. I, so I, amazing. I, I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> I always, yeah. Oh, it was so good. I, yeah. I've, I've, I, that probably comes up in my head multiple times a month since, you know, however many years ago she said it. And I always think to myself, well, in what place can I give athletes that gift of notice where it's not me even necessarily coaching them? It's, hey, do this. And and I always just, it's more like a checklist of rather than my coaching now, rather than like things to cue is more things to notice than anything. Mm-hmm. That's like 80% is here's things to notice. And then 20% is maybe things to say, try to do this. And, I love that. And That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, credit to Helen with that one. And then, yeah, inner game of tennis with Timothy Galway and just that kind of thinking. But that, like yeah that inhale and exhale it's like that's to me i'll be playing with that for sure for all my movements and even like the the rotational like i can so basically what you're saying with like a rotational press like what the, the side of the body that's ering that's more externally rotation bias that's more the inhalation feeling the expansion in that side through inhalation and so someone who let's say they're not reciprocal or whatever i mean what what um problems with breathing do you usually see? Is it just the, the exhale doesn't fit with the or the inhale? There's just no rhythm with when the body's doing either of these things or I'm assuming or how is there any more details with that? Yeah. So I think part of it is that you have to create the adaptive change of the skeletal system. So you have to create the um, shape change. So if the ribs are compressed because you hear compression, it's not a I think a lot of people think of compression and they leave it at, this is like bad, Mm -hmm. like this doesn't move and this doesn't move. And we need to create space there. Absolutely. We do need to do that because if the ribs don't move, the spine's not going to move and we're going to, or we're going to try to move through much too much through our spine instead of allowing for that transverse uh, movement through the ribs. But once you get the expansion where you need it, which does require sort of holding tension on one side to drive expansion on the other. So if I held just from like an easy perspective for people to hear, if I kind of gripped my abs and held them down and took an inhale, the pressure is going to push back posterior into my ribs and create some expansion. And I can do that on one side or the other. And that creates the reciprocal nature. So if somebody's stuck in a position where they can't reciprocate, we have to restore that first. But once we, we restore it, and this, what you said about Helen Hall and the gift of noticing, once we restore it, we can start to play with pairing the motions that belong together. And that to me is athleticism. That is training. That is the natural way of things that is crawling and throwing and walking. These are natural moments where you just turn into ER and throw a ball into IR, right? And so you create that spin off your hand. And I think we get lost of trying to uncompress somebody or create this perfect movement, but then we stop there and we don't develop 
the natural reciprocal motion. And I think PRI has gotten a lot of, you know, slack for this because it's like, but it's only because people didn't finish out the system. Not that I'm saying you should Mm -hmm. go through every single transition, but I do think their model is let's create the expansion needed to create the reciprocal movements and then let's train the reciprocal movements. (laughs) So I think that's, how I like to think of it is like, how do I get someone to that place? So they're able to do what I'm talking about in that split squat. Gotcha. So like with the PR, like all the reaching drills, like all the 90 90s or the reaching bar, like that's all creating expansion and creating space. And then what you're saying is this like people just leave it there and they don't actually go into like, well, now how do I compress and alternate? I guess. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like how do I do this now in real life? Yeah. So you're saying so like uh, something after going through some of that, the inhibition and, and opening up would be like the like a split stance where one side of my body is compressing, one side is expanding. Or when um, David Gray and Kyle Dobbs were on here, they talked about crawling where you're feeling the compression happening or you could even breathe into that on one side, which I was playing around with a lot. It takes forever to crawl like that. I get a little bit bored, <laughs> but I, I, it does make sense. I, mean, I like it. So. Yeah, it sort of slows you down. But then the idea is to not slow down and just start crawling, right? Or just do whatever you need to do. It's like prepping you to be able to do the sporting type performance type motions. I wanted to take a very quick break from the show and let you know about our other sponsor, simplyfaster.com and their blood flow restriction cuff giveaway. So you can win a free pair of blood flow restriction training cuffs, which we talked about on the last episode with Dr. Chris Gaviglio. Uh, He talked about all the benefits of blood flow restriction or BFR training. And if you are interested in this technology, a great starting point, I can't think of much of a better way than winning a free pair of cuffs. So you can head on over to Simply Faster via this link which is bit.ly slash freebfr. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash freebfr. And you can sign up to win a pair of Valde Airbands and that competition or giveaway ends on November 11th. So make sure you get your information in there before November 11th, 2021. So if you're listening to this in 2023, sorry, it's too late. Just for this two-week window, if you're really keeping up with these podcasts in live format. So anyways... Get on that, simplyfaster.com, amazing service and great sports tech. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I would imagine at some level of velocity, like, right, you aren't thinking of any of this anymore because I was going to thinking about asking you as like a medicine ball drill, right? I have like a six-pound medicine ball and I'm whipping it. Like at that velocity, I'm probably not thinking about what side. I mean, you could, I guess. Maybe it'd be cool if an athlete's doing it. It's like, oh, yeah, I feel this happening. Cool. But it, I would imagine once there's a certain velocity that 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 level and maybe this fits to what you were talking about initially with like well where's the corrective and then where's the play and exploration like once you get to a particular level of velocity on that spectrum okay like the cues are kind of gone like it's like you're more just prepping them and then hopefully they start to connect it absolutely and i do think like a, a reactive medicine ball drill like if you're trying to create some sort of shape change i think you can use that and i think you could coordinate the breath with it and then or the goal being that you don't use it in that way and you're just allowing them to have better power output or whatever, you know, reactive capabilities, whatever you're trying to get out of them. But there's, it makes sense to me that I might teach them to sort of inhale and like create this space and then exhale and slam to just build that more, I don't know, like 
neurological robust component of movement as opposed to just throw this ball and we're not even thinking about any of that and that probably would depend like if it's a kid you're not gonna like yeah. coach a kid like that you no. know <laughs> if it's an adult who is having issues and they need like a framework for bringing their body back into like a balanced state then i think it makes a lot of sense yeah kids just do things naturally oh so know? i was just thinking yeah mike my, my kids the amount of expansion they can get in their rib cages is unbelievable they put me to so much shame like if they're breathing they're like <laughs> i'm like i i like it's funny because i'll find myself asking can you breathe again and do that again just because it's like it just reminds me of how expansive a child is through that region and how terrible i am in retrospect i guess i mean i feel like i'm decent but it's just like it's just cool to see the natural this is your natural setting and yeah, how far yeah. did we fall off? Of I'll that? send you a class I did this week that was all on like taking your rib cage to that end range, like ER and IR on the opposite side. And literally the entire class was just doing that. Because I do think that there's so much need for that, you know, because when do we start to lose it? We lose it because we're sitting here. We're not yeah. walking much. We're not moving as much. Maybe if we just did those things all along and never stopped doing them, maybe we'd have more of that dynamic capability. I don't know. Yeah, I know like my kids are like always just all over the place, like not always, but usually they I mean, I think it was um, Tommy John or somebody who said like a kid, a six year old needs to do like, I don't know, maybe eight year old needs to do like five miles a day of movement for op like just even develop their brain, like for all the systems to be online. And just what I mean, the kids are they're always going nonstop. And so I've heard like the I've heard the term like walking is respiration. Isn't that a PRI term or something like that? So therefore, yes. Yeah, we sit and then that also decreases that part of ourselves. Yeah. And I think for um, children, they're much more likely to explore movement and not put parameters on what should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah. That's why it's like everything. Yeah. You tell to a child like can limit what could be, you know, it's like with movement, with how you should do this. So I'm very aware of that. I've said some stupid stuff to my kids that I'd still like, no. I shouldn't have said that. Just let them figure <laughs> just, it out. Just do it however you want to do it. Exactly. We don't need to tell you how to do it. Exactly. Um, I So one of the things, actually, the breathing thing is interesting. I'm going to have back on, Logan Christopher has been on the show a couple of times who does like herbalism, but he's also a, like amateur strongman and does a lot of that stuff and researches like the old strongmen. And a huge component of what they did was breathing and breath related, like forceful, intentional breathing. And I think so oftentimes it seems, or I've I've seen you even post about this is that we know how important breathing is, but then we actually go and start having clients do it. And it's like, you know, this is boring. What should I be feeling? Um, just any primers with that type of stuff, like things to not do ways to make it like, and I think to make it come alive, like putting it with movement, like you were talking about, right? Like, but any just general primers from starting with breath. I know you said supine being really good. Uh, maybe just a little bit about how that um, your take on really integrating that, um, element of things in your training. So yeah, you don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole if you can prevent it. Like all the things I wish I would have known five or six years ago and not done, but um, in some ways it's a learning process and maybe it's okay to make those mistakes and just have to kind of, I mean, I was blowing up balloons and having clients blow up balloons in <laughs> the middle of the gym. It's a little weird, you know? Um, but I would say get them, allow them to feel it within just the orientation of everything. So how your body, your head sits over your thorax, sits over your pelvis. 
sits over your, your feet, right? Just allow them to feel like what a natural posture should feel like when you're standing at ease and breathe there. Because a lot of people, because of all the compensatory strategies we have, they sort of stand up either leaning more towards one side, dropping their chest down, having their head in front of their thorax, standing on their toes, or maybe pushing back to their heels to try to fight the thorax that's in front of their pelvis. And that creates a lot of tension in the system. And so a lot of people don't even know what it feels like to just stand. And they're always fidgeting. You can see it. They're, when they sit, they're fidgeting. When they're standing, they're moving from leg to leg because they don't know what it feels like to stand at ease. And they can't even feel that and find themselves in space. So if you can learn how to teach somebody where they're at and then reposition them into a standing posture that's just, oh, and they breathe there, they kind of look at you and they open up and they are like, oh, this feels so weird. Like I've never, yeah, this is better, you know? And it requires different tension in different places. And I think that's what we're trying to get at is where do we create a little bit more tension and compression so that we can take a little bit of load off the opposite side, if that makes sense. So I wish I could just say like, do this, but everybody's orientation is different. So you Mm -hmm. sort of have to have an assessment to be able to understand what they need. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. As, um, as I'm on the other end of the microphone, it's funny because I think about the common, um, like news reporter question or interviewer question. Well, th- what's just one tip like this? Cause it's always like <laughs> the world is complex. Right. And it's like, Oh, just give me one tip for, um, breathing. But I, 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 I like what you said. I've been thinking about it so much. Maybe I'll run this by you is I've been thinking about it a lot in the sense of, well, where am I not getting expansion? Like what isn't expanding? Like what part of the, like a lot of athletes who just seem to be, there's no breath that gets in like the middle or lower back or something like that. It's pretty common. So I, I've been tending to think a bit more in that realm. You're saying, I'm sure that's still important, right? But you're kind of more like, well, what's not compressing? Maybe if like, would it be a thing if they're not, they don't seem to be able to get air there instead of focusing on maybe expanding there, maybe just compressing, just getting more compression on the other side. Would that be a way of looking at it. So just because I, I'm really, really curious that for the last six to eight months, I've been really interested in that expansion of the air in the back. And I never thought about it from a compression in the front perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, compression is really important because that is what is keeping us rooted into the ground and providing that reference point that we can push up out of. And so if there is an area that is, you know, compressed, um, and we need to expand it, we have to create the opposite side compression to be able to, basically, if you take a hose and there's a, <laughs> there's a hole on one side and a hole on the other, if you push the hole on the one side and you block it off, the leak's going to come out the other side, right? And so we have to manage the leaks in our system to be able to push the pressure elsewhere. So I always just say, um, when, when we're doing breathing drills specifically for the purpose of creating the expansion that you're talking about to get out of that extension pattern or whatever, we're actually needing to make sure that we're covering the the leaks in the system and keeping those engaged and tight to expand from the inside out to create the, the pressure pushing out against the ribs or the sacrum or wherever we're trying to create that. So would you say I feel like myself, like very simple questions being generated here. And, and in the sense of uh, like, do you think that 
like an athlete with a good, I guess a quote unquote good set of abs, like would be less likely to have like those that excess compression in the back. You know what I'm saying? Like someone who has, you know, that's a good aesthetic six pack and ribs that can move up and down. Like so, and, and I think that cause like I've worked in track a lot and track athletes are obsessed with abs. And I feel like some of that obsession, yes, we all want to look good or whatever, but I do think that some of that obsession also fits with this feeling of what it felt like to have a good performance, if that makes sense. And just maybe that strong abdominal or function be able to compress in the front led to just a general better functionality of the core in general. I'd be curious to your thoughts on that. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think there is usefulness in that where you can get into a little bit of a sticky point is if they're creating that compression with the rectus and okay. not really utilizing the internal and external mm. obliques to sort of wrap around. And then what that does is create like almost excessive expansion uh, in the mid thorax, but you can still dump forward at the pelvis. So you end up with a big lordosis, a little bit more kyphosis, or what can happen is you can compress the front, compress between the scaps and then the entire system, which most athletes, and especially if they have a six pack are probably compressed all the way up and down the thorax. Um, just because at some point based on the demands of the sport, you're going to end up compensating enough to get the job done. I mean, you can undo all this, um, to a degree, but I think underlying that is our, as an athlete, you can understand this, but like the drive to get the job done, no matter what. And you can't think about that while you're performing, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to create that anterior abdominal wall to be able to get the expansion you need. But having a six pack isn't necessarily a indicator of having like a solid um, control of that pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, I mean, okay. it's almost like there's different, I don't know, not to tr- turn this into like a bodybuilding talk, but I almost feel like there's different kinds of six packs where you see the abs and you know it's like functional. And I think like you're saying, there's obliques, like you can see the ribs being able to move like those kind of things versus the, and it's almost like the stringy abs that just kind of sit in front, you know, where, where there's not a lot of oblique action going on or the ribs don't move as well so i i i understand what you're saying i guess i'm always just trying to think about um i'm just trying to connect things in my head with what i've seen and what you you feel you know is a very functional athlete who can compress that abdominal wall and get like a lot of pressure when they need to yeah i almost think the athletes that can lengthen the abdominal wall and create tension are the ones that are impressive So like, if you watch a sprinter, they're on one side of their abdominal wall, they're lengthening that tissue, but they're not just letting it hang out. They're creating tension within the system while they're doing that. That's a very athletic body to me. When I can create tension in a lengthened position, that's the jam. Like that's where I think people excel. That makes sense. I I totally agree. Yeah. Cause I would see like it. You think about the typical abdominal, it's just like, oh, a bunch of crunches, it's six minute abs, and it's just all shortening and just, you know, hyper shortening of the abs. It's not like, it's definitely not the most athletic thing you can be doing with yourself. So that's, I'm always just trying to put that together because I've just seen, I've seen it in swimmers too. Uh, and so often, again, I mean, swimming, you have a huge, like, I want to look good on deck, you know, like I, you know, type, type thing going on. But I see that a lot. And, and I'm always just trying to make sense. I've actually, I've talked with, um, others about just the compressive, that compressive nature. So I'm trying to always put together, like, what do people intuitively have and what's the best practice with going about that? And then, yeah, just fitting that in with the air, um, that can expand elsewhere is interesting. So to, um, in order to get more obliques and 
uh, internal, external obliques and things like that. Are there any just like general guidelines for abdominal training that will allow a better compression in front, a more fuller compression, uh, things not to do in that realm that won't lead to being able to compress and expand the back as well? Um, yeah. So one of the things I do with people that is eye opening is I put them in a lengthened abdominal position and have them reverse the breathing. So typically let's say you're going to do like a sit up. You would imagine that you'd sort of exhale as you came up to sit up off the ground and you'd inhale as you went back. Like that's like producing the force for the crunching objective, or maybe a bicycle is like a better, like a bicycle crunch where you're sort of like extending one leg. Instead, have somebody hold that position where their legs extended, their arms are extended overhead, then have them exhale there and feel the tension created in that lengthened position. Because to me, that's always eye opening for people. You're basically not leveraging their rectus and making them have to use the obliques a little bit more and TVA and all of those deep abdominal muscles. Cool. So that's how I just switch the breathing. Yeah. So just hold it. So creating more isometric situations where they can breathe in and out and feel that compressive nature of things. Yes, exactly. Like a rollout is a great example. Like if you're, you know, got a wheel ab rollout, most people are going to think intuitively, I'm going to exhale as I pull back. But if you suck at lengthening and eccentrically loading a position, try exhaling when you're all the way out in that lengthened state keeping us a, a tuck. So not allowing yourself to go in this like excessive, um, extension pattern, exhale, and then pull back and inhale. Yeah. One of the, one of the exercises, um, that I've done in the past. And it was just funny being like the university strength coach at some point where, where you have this group and you know, the general scope, you know, without being able to be super specific to any one individual, you know, the general scope of exercises. And for me, like every year, I just want to try new stuff, try new stuff, try new stuff. And one year, I learned about extreme slows. I That kind of went along with uh, extreme isometrics that Jay Schrader was doing. And he had also done these extreme slow exercises where you go really slowly down into the bottom of a movement. So I was thinking, what if you did like an extreme slow ab wheel? Went down really, really, really slow. And, and so that was like the worst, like that was the hardest thing I've ever done for like my trunk muscles is just slowly, like literally like 60 seconds I'm talking about going in the bottom of an ab wheel. And so, I mean, there's the lengthening, <laughs> yes, but there's also like the breath that happens at, towards the end range, you know, that's, that was really, really difficult. So I'd imagine something like that, that would be happening in, in that type of situation. Yeah. I mean, essentially if you're training eccentrically, you might get more metabolic changes. So maybe in some ways by inhaling in those lengthened positions, you're even pushing that eccentric component a little bit more. So it makes a lot of sense to me. You're going to be sore as hell the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Your abs are going to be feeling like they're ripping apart, but (laughs) yeah, I'm always just searching to find these mechanisms and things that I've done. I was like, Oh yeah, Yeah. that could be there. So awesome. Like, yeah, I, I did, I used to do too, like these, um, like, you know, like the valve slide pushups where it's like one hand's at your side and one hand goes like out, like in yeah. front of you, like you're doing a freestyle. So kind of like you're doing a freestyle swim. And I, remember, I love that type of thing. Cause yeah. it's like putting crawling and those types of motions, those playful motions in with regular exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I really, for swimmers, I love that stuff. And I remember not thinking about breathing though. This, I just did like a lot of triphasic stuff. So it'd be like, Hold it there and pause four seconds. And I guess you think inevitably there's has to be breathing going on in those situations at those end ranges. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where we lose it is we're not able to control the inhale in a lengthened position Mm. or we're not able to create an 
exhale that's con- that's creating that contractile property in a lengthened position. So because we don't train it that much, you know what I mean? No. So with uh, I'll ask you this because my mind's on swimmers and we're talking about this is I had a lot of female swimmers, especially who they do push ups or anything in that realm. And just tons, just instantly, like tons of compression in the low back, lots of anterior tilt. And it just would be easy just to blame it on general strength. But that has to be an exhalation issue, right? Like they, when they get in that push-up position, they can't create enough compression in the front to to have everything, I guess, quote unquote, more neutral. Because I think it would be common just to say, all right, we'll put a stick on their back and you have to, you know, almost like compensate yourself into molding to that stick. You know what I'm saying? Like what would be from a breathing and a lengthening perspective, what's, what's going on in that situation with the athlete who, you know, they're doing the push up and they just can't, they can't, they have too much like low back um, compression in that situation. Yeah. So let's think about this. Let me try to break it down. So especially a swimmer and I'm not, I was a diver actually. So I <laughs> have seen a lot of swimmers and been on the, the team with them, but um, I'm thinking about like a lot of females and male swimmers have like sort of a compressive nature of, and especially that sternum sort of dropping down. So let's say that I put somebody in a push up position, which is requiring internal rotation at the shoulder. As I sort of like push through mm-hmm. the floor and have to push in to the palm of my hand, like into my palm arch for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have this sort of compression in the front of the sternum. I'm going to be limited in internal rotation. Now I put you in a push up position that requires that. And I'm taking away your strategy for getting internal rotation, which is at the pelvis as you dump your pelvis forward. So now I'm taking that away from you. And then I'm telling you, you need to hold this more expanded position on the backside. And now I want you to internally rotate on the front side and keep your sternum up so you can do that. And I maybe that's um, the reason they can't. Because a lot of people, in order to get that compressive nature on the front side, will just drop their, I'm, you're, nobody can see me on this, but <laughs> I'm dropping my sternum down and sort of compressing down to create that pressure. But I want to stay lengthened and create the pressure and that canister but without dropping the sternum. And I think especially in swimming, because the lats probably gain so much leverage, mm-hmm. they pull us into even more internal rotation, right? Yeah, and sort of shorten sense. and pull on the sacrum probably to some degree too, as you're in like a hip extended position and kicking, I would imagine that where they attach on the sacrum is sort of driving a little bit of lordosis maybe through that I, range. I, I could see that because it was honestly some pretty good swimmers who did that. Like people who are honestly incredible in the water who still did push-ups like that and I always remember thinking like okay here I am the strength coach and I want someone to do a really good push-up but like they're obviously still really good and and how much does it really matter outside of maybe if they're getting hurt or something and we need to you know something needs to move better but I I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of the lats like working so hard to put put them in that situation when they're going to push and that's what because honestly I think that they did a lot of them did get better at that over the years but it's almost like they learned to compensate their way into somehow figuring yeah. it out and i don't know that it was a performance advantage i just found it interesting and obviously you don't want i don't know you do if you're the strength coach you don't really want people doing like super archy push-ups and <laughs> things like that so i mean it really yeah. would be uh, i mean in that situation or sometimes uh like i'll do like push-up hold isometric push-up holds like if i'm an isometric push-up hold just a good focus could be a full inhale and exhale like the ribs moving feeling the compression when i'm in that position feel expansion when i inhale 
those kind of yeah and keeping the sternum up while you do it and pushing into the arches of your hand Mm. yeah like i mean that would be a great drill and i also think like with swimmers i mean you're in a body of water or a pool so the the compressive nature of the water around the body what are they trying to do they're trying to be like little torpedoes in Mm -hmm. the water right so they create a lot of compression around the thorax and potentially around the pelvis too and they probably gain a lot of motion at the elbows at the wrists at the fingertips as they're trying to kind of glide through the water and use their extremities to create motion at the shoulders at the hips so you might you might in those people see a lot of like laxity um as you get a little bit further out into the limbs gotcha yeah i know a lot of swimmers uh, it was interesting to think is it chicken or the egg you know like is it just the hypermobile person became a good swimmer because that's part of their weapon or is it an adaptation if they just maybe grew up doing a ton of swimming and didn't play as many land sports and i know in the question list it was something the tune of you could have hypermobility because you have like what like a lack of ir or too much ir what what was something like like a different alternative view of hypermobility that you had yeah so i used to always think of hypermobility as like this systemic um laxity of all the joints but i had a guest speaker on a couple times in my membership, Kat Cowley, and she kind of specializes um, in ELO Stanlos and um, hypermobiles and how to train for those people and all the considerations and things we need to think about. And one of the things that struck me the most is she said that a lot of times um, people who are hypermobile appear to be lacking a lot of range because they sort of lock down proximally to create some stability. Otherwise they're just flailing around and trying to manage gravity. And so when they sort of locks lock down the thorax, they are going to have to move somewhere else. So they're going to create excessive motion either. It's like, if you, if you, you've probably seen this a lot, like people can't pronate and supinate. So they're the arch of their foot is not as dynamic as it should be. So what happens, they create a lot of mobility at the ankle joint Mm, because the midfoot is so rigid And so then they end up with ankle sprains or whatever else. And it's the same thing systemically, I would think, with people who have a little more hypermobility. Now, when you're talking about it, ELO, Stanlos and all that, I'm not even going to speak to that because I'm sure that it's like there's metabolic issues and things that I have no idea about. And these people just have a very challenging, it's not necessarily coming from an alteration of their um, skeletal positioning. So I don't want to like... I don't want to downplay sure. that because I think it's a big deal for people. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's interesting. I, I guess I just try to put it even outside of working with swimmers. Um, like I see it in running happen all the time when someone like it's almost like there's too much arm action going on and then they're like ribs are totally blocked up and there's no motion because yeah. it's I totally see that. And then I but I was thinking coming full circle that and I have to I only have n of n of a few here. So I need to like have a bigger sample size. But I feel like those same people, if you put them on like I like to do like a tall um, straight arm, but not a hyperextended dip hold. So they're just holding a dip tall straight like you're on a parallel bars. And those okay. people tend to be very hyperextendy in my small sample size. Like yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> you can't. You can. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm definitely not even be able to get to 180. So I don't know. I just wonder. Is wondering if that all went together at all. Like, like I think so. I think it's creating motion down the chain. Yeah. Yeah. Get what they need. Absolutely. Because if you think of it systemically, like if I 
lock out my shoulder blades and I pull my, my shoulders and my scaps back. And I'm like now existing in that bro posture mm-hmm. with my like scaps back and my chest up. My, I, it, I'm not going to walk forward. If you guys could see me, I basically have my palms up. I'm not going to walk forward with my palms facing forward. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to take my, <laughs> myself mm-hmm. and I'm going to move my arms into internal rotation. So now my arms are more internally rotated. Well, I need external rotation. So now at the elbow joint, I'm going to potentially, you know what I mean? So it's like going down the chain as we make these um, alterations. Yeah, it's it's just cool to me to think where all these things come from that we, I mean, I always tell the athlete, well, just don't hyperextend your elbows. You do like, don't let yourself lock out. Or like a lot of times swimmers, it's like, don't stand with your knees hyperextended, but it's like, well, where is this coming from? And maybe well, we that, can work on that. That too. brings up a big point, Joel, because then you can get into like the non-contractile tissue adaptations that you can create by doing that. So it's actually really good to coach. Don't lock your elbows out because you mm-hmm. might create some stiffness in the joint. You know what I mean? So that swimmer that has that hype, but again, do you want to take it away from them? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess like you have to find, it's a, it's a hard line to decide. I don't envy the people who work with elite athletes and have to make that decision about their pathology and their performance. And like, what are we willing to take away in order to give them back a little something? Yeah. Do you know what I, I mean? Oh, I totally understand that. I think for swimmers, it's definitely okay to say not, just because I do think it also can decrease their reactivity. Like, cause once the joint's totally locked out, it's not reactive anymore. Like it can't, it can't roll with whatever is the environment's putting on it. So um, yeah, I'll definitely still keep with the don't lock out your elbows, but now I have more to think about. Well, what, what other motions up the chain are causing that just general trend of movement? Um, yeah. So you could like create more proximal movement and then try to create stiffness down the line. Yeah. It's just interesting to think that things are so floppy on the outside because there's nothing moving on the inside. Um, mm-hmm. really cool. Uh, wow. So we're like, on the second question um all right i i do want to all right i really want to talk about this um you've had a few posts here and I, this has just been a little bit of my thought and journey in the sense of shoot for probably a, well, i don't know 10 years a really long time it was all about uh and in some ways it still is is like the forefoot in squatting like how do we get to the ball of the foot quicker in squatting sometimes we'll float the heels in squatting um and good athletes can do that like they are very explosive and highly connected between the ball of the foot and the glute but then the heels are really important and being able to access the heels. And so uh, just in some general principles from uh, in, in accessing the heels and squatting and then the transitioning to the forefoot uh, for health performance, just how you see that action happening. Yeah. So I think there's kind of the trend to elevate the heels, to bring the floor up to somebody who is maybe more um, biased towards the front of their foot. So they, don't have the requisite dorsiflexion and pronation that they need to get into a lower range of the squat as your knees have to go forward. Um, and so you can use the heel elevation to create more of a stacked position so you can keep a more vertical upright squat. That's great. Um, but ultimately it's not creating the same adaptation in the foot and the ankle joint to allow for the tipping forward or the anterior tilt of the calcaneus. Yeah. So when you get to like a 90 degree range and I had just been thinking about this because I was watching myself squat. Like I take videos sometimes just to see if I'm like, cause you can't tell unless you actually like to video mm-hmm. yourself and like, am I doing what I think I'm doing? 
And I actually had one of my colleagues who's a friend I love, uh, Mike Mullins, he had sent me a text one day and he was like, check that heel out, Katie. Like he had seen some Instagram posts and I thought that was hilarious. And I thought about it and I was like, well, we're talking about people getting back on their heels so much, but if we're going to put that joint at an end range to create that non-contractile energy efficient, like spring-like recoil of the tissues, then wouldn't it make sense to sort of push into the midfoot and potentially into the forefoot just a little bit to get that tension on the system to be able to spring back up? So like in a way, in my mind, I feel like there's this moment at the bottom of the squat where we sort of go from back on the heels as our, if you can get into a full squat, where your pelvis sort of posteriorly orients underneath you to then coming up just outside of that and allowing the knees to go forward and more pressure into the mid to forefoot to allow for the internal rotation, like that point where the knees sort of want to turn in and you get that femoral IR. And then that is like much needed. So if you're always elevating your heels, how are you ever getting that? So I think it makes sense to like bring the person down to the lowest range they can get at that time while you're also working on getting their thorax a little bit better centered over their pelvis, like with other activities too. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, it's funny you said that because I found myself with multiple clients uh, and I'm definitely in a big squat on a slant like trend in my life right now. And I, I think it is really good, but I also, I, as you, as soon as you said with the Healy version, cause I've multiple times will put Gary Ward's wedges in a, in a like manner to get the heel bones to ever when they're, cause they, it's just the trend for the heel bones not to really move in that situation. And I want, and, and that's oftentimes um, I see it too, where like the athlete like you expect that those knees to tick in a little bit at the bottom and to pronate and that's not happening. And so I'm like, and I watch the heel bones, they aren't moving. And I'm like, well, what can I do on the level of the foot and sensory to help this athlete feel supination and pronation? Anyways, that's where I was going. And so that makes total sense to me that they, and I can't even say that it worked that amazingly because the heels are still on a slant. It's still a slant, but it was better than not having them, I guess. So I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying with the heel bones and everything there. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I think it's a good strategy because it's not like you can sit there and do Gary Ward's pronation drills with every athlete. Like that's just insane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You only have so much time. You're only one human. So you really have to, even with my clients, you know, it's a, it's like a rabbit hole to go down and they don't really want to spend a whole session trying to get this dynamic foot arch, you know? And so I refer out a lot to uh, one of the women that teaches for me in EP. She's like genius at the foot. And I'm like, just go do a session with her because I don't want to waste your time here when you want to spend time with me getting fit and getting strong, you know? So I think like, it's clever to use the strategies you're using to like not have to go down that rabbit hole with people. And, and hopefully as their orientation gets better, then the heel starts to um, roll and tip forward the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, I had asked um, Eric Huddleston when he was on the show not too long ago, like he had said he doesn't always use the slant, the slant boards. And I, I, again, I was like, I was thinking like, well, why just thinking about how much better squatting just tends to look, especially deep squatting. I mean, it's just not even close for so many people. And I guess if you're, I guess my thought would be if it's a partial squat, and the feet are flat. And now you're not getting to the depth where all the bad compensations could happen. And then you're with the foot flat now, you're still giving a chance for that heel bone to ever at a little bit of like more natural pronation, perhaps. Uh, at least the way I'm just kind of putting it together in my head with, with 
people who um uh, so maybe my question would be as someone who like yeah you said you'd refer out but like just gen- just in general outside of referring out for footwork um someone like that who like their heel bones are pretty stuck they don't evert the knees kind of trend just forward for the most like they don't have kind of any sort of dynamic knee motion you would you would be more likely to have them um be like just flat on the ground or uh like less of a slant or uh, take me through your thought process there i'd i'd bring the floor up to them and use the slant board especially if they can't manage gravity i could then either i have probably a couple options i could take away the demands of gravity by giving them like a TRX or something to help stabilize, but trying to drive the knees in front of the toes and allowing for the, um, for the calcaneus to tip forward. And I could even do, you had asked me about this, but like the toe off positions, so they can't go onto their toes and they have to drive to the midfoot as the knee go forward, goes forward. Or I could use an accessory exercise, like a split squat and do kind of the same thing. So I'm sort of biasing one side And a lot of times it is one-sided, like there's one foot that doesn't um, rotate the way it should. So you can still use the slant board just to gain the mechanical and metabolic changes to create the volume and the strength that you need. But then in your accessory work, you could use um, like a toe-off position or um, some sort of drill that's going to just push the knee forward while staying over the midfoot. That makes sense. Yeah, sense? totally. Yeah. yeah, with that, actually, the athlete that I was talking about, I really like. He's gotten great uh, response from the um, David. I know David Gray uses it. David O'Sullivan was talking about. It's like the th- thing where you're in a split stance, half squat, knee goes over the toe, and you do like the Jefferson curl thing, the slouches, and come back. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So that was like that was he felt that so good and like his VMO and glute and like that was really helpful for him. So it's like yeah, it's almost like look, we're not we're only going to get so much in a squat. I think with being on two legs and it's like instead of one and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, it's fantastic for building up the capacity to, you know, really move some load and create that strength change that you want. Um, But it's limited in in the ability to um, get that full range of motion for most people. Like I rarely meet someone that can squat without compensation all the way to the ground. Yeah. So that's not really the squat isn't really the place that I know it's like you know, Charles Poliquin like talks about the health of a a good deep squat's a healthy athlete. And yeah, but I mean maybe that's not the best way to focus is to focus on the squat so heavily for the the joint movement. That's more for power and then go to the accessories to work on all the motions and things. Yeah, that's how I see it. And and that because you can manipulate a squat like fifteen thousand ways mm-hmm. just for the um just for the management of load if that's what you want to do and i mean and there is a lot to be said that strength is pretty important overall and if you don't have it's kind of like if you don't have enough strength to even perform the skill then but at the same time we probably need to teach some of the skill while you're trying to build some of the strength you know so there's a little bit of give and take and you just have to decide what's important for that particular person that's sitting in front of you yeah, for sure. Uh, so two more questions of squatting. I think that'll be good for uh, kind of keeping this show in a little bit of a solid container with a, a somewhat of a you know a pretty good central theme with inside out. But so you mentioned the no toes and that I actually I love that I saw that and I was like, yes, this is awesome. I Because I do a lot of just I've done a lot of work just without 
with purposely um, keeping my toes up just to see, like, just to kind of be more aware and notice my midfoot more and how yeah. that, and that was like months ago, I started doing that. Like last, it was, um, was it 2021? <laughs> August, August of 2020, I started doing that and like, oh, this is cool. And been playing with that, but I'd never seen the squat, like it integrated in that way. And I was like, this is so cool. Uh, so tell me a little bit about a no-toes squat how like where did you come up with the idea and then with the midfoot zeroing in on the midfoot how are you really um what is that communicating to the athlete or client yeah it's it's pretty crazy when you try to get somebody to do that it's one of the hardest things i've ever done (laughs) (laughs) your body has to be able to not compensate and cooperate in so many ways but my thought behind it was i was coaching actually i might have been listening to raleigh coach it the woman that um teaches for me but after doing so many case studies and having so many people that I was trying to take through Gary Ward's drills with the pronation. And all I kept hearing myself say was heel heavy, heel heavy. Don't let the thorax go forward, ribs down, heel heavy, heel heavy. I was just like chronically trying to keep (laughs) somebody back. (laughs) And the thing about this mid, you know, sort of compression based area of the squat is that we need to be able to stay back, but push forward at the same time. So we need that moment of like the knees shutting forward or jutting forward. And then the arch coming down and the calcaneus tipping without going onto the toes and missing that, Mm. like we're not staying there long enough. So when you try to squat with your toes off of something, there is no cheating it. You're only Mm. gonna get down as far as you can where your feet are going to allow for that motion to happen and your thorax and your pelvis and everything. So if anybody out there tries it, just take your little toes off of the box and try to squat. It's crazy. It's completely different than, um, but, but I think it's useful and it's a useful teaching tool of sort of, so what are the things that are limiting you from getting down now? Like what's really happening here? Yeah, I, I really, I really like that. And something I've noticed with some athletes who um, they tend to be very anteriorly tilted, very strong calves forward a lot as a, like what you were saying, like be more on your heels. And I think actually, maybe before I say this, could you do a quick distinction? Because just I think in the performance world, like there is that like, you know, when you transition into um, you call it like uh, um, what part, what rock, the third rocker or Adrian Bar's second class lover, basically where the heel is coming up in a sprint, you know, the ball, the foot's on the ground, the heel's coming up, the shin's forward, like it's the liftoff. Um, that versus um like a the first class lower where the heel is still on the ground like maybe i'm doing a a move in basketball and i'm kind of squatted down trying to manage my way by somebody like those situations where the foot stays flat versus the heel comes up but anyways tell me the importance of staying back on the heel because i think a lot of people think of the heel as oh it's it's a slower unathletic you want to get to the ball of the foot you want to be fascially dynamic right like so just quick distinction there and and why um, why the heel is important in that situation uh, versus athletes who rush into that too fast or can't stay on their heel as long as they need to. Okay. So this is a really good question. I haven't ever really thought about, um, but I'm sort of wondering if some people are very good at sort of expanding. So like when you talk about the third rocker or then pushing off and coming to the ball, of the foot, I think of that as like, a spring that's being pulled apart, like really far. And then the motion is going to be created by the spring sort of recoiling back together, if that makes sense. Whereas if I'm on a heel, I'm 
doing the opposite. So I'm trying to take that spring and squeeze it down really tight. And then the motion is coming from the, the opening up of the spring. Does that make sense? Uh, somewhat. I, I guess I what I'm thinking about is when the heel's down and the, the, the calf is going to work eccentrically, like the calf will lengthen in that late rocker. It's the calf kind of stays isometric and, and the whole unit comes forward. You know what I'm saying? So I, I get it from the sense of when the heel's down, the calf is, there's more lengthening and shortening of the mus the musculature in that. I, I, mm -hmm. Am I close with that or? Uh, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm trying to think how I look at it because I do have very weird thoughts about this, but I, I think that um, it comes also from the, if going back to your earlier question, like you can only go, if you're in a certain position, there's only so much left to go into that range. Yeah. And so if you're always on your toes and you're never coming back on your heels, it's not just that like the, the range is limited at the foot. The range is going to be going to change for you all the way up the chain. Mm. And so pulling you back and teaching you to how to keep that rocker going is part of keeping your system moving systemically all the way up the chain, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I, I, mean, I will say like, I noticed that just because an athlete is, I would, there's different, it's almost like there's different kinds of forefoot dominance, maybe putting it this way. Like there's an athletic forefoot dominance, someone who has all the ranges and can get to the ball of the yes. foot powerfully and explicitly. And there's a person who's just kind of stuck on the ball of the foot who's not as athletic. And I find, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to categorize this because again, it's, it's, okay. it tend to be so black and white. And it's like, oh, you're, four, you're, you're strong with the ball of your foot, but it's like, Yes, there's other things to load the system that are important. And this is when I hear like in the PRI, I always talk about heels. And I, as growing as a coach, I wish to understand why the heels is more important. And I will frame part of the reason I asked you that question is I've noticed um, with the toes up thing, sometimes I'll do, I think they're called like Z walks or I don't know what, but like you, you do like a quarter squat and you lift your toes up and you try to like walk. And I, there's some athletes who can't do that. Like, and I think you need to be able to like use the heel and the, the back of the foot and expand through the back of the heel or whatever to be able to do that. But they're so like just jammed into the front. They can't like squat down and yield. And I don't, does that make sense? I just, when I take the toes away, they really can't do it. <laughs> and yeah. So I guess the question is, do they need to be able to do that? And if so, why? And then, you know, do how much of it do we drive? Um, but I think it's probably because what's happening above their feet as well. So, um, but you're right. I think it's like the non-athletic person that's just living on their toes. It's not a great scenario for a healthy body that is able to respond well to movement. Um, so that would be a person. Yes, you could train that. And with the athletes, do you need to bother to train it? I don't know. It just depends on you know, how many issues they have going on and what's irritated or is not performing well. Because again, if their thorax is so far in front of them all of the time, then they're going to start limiting ranges of motion that they might need to, like you said, get their thorax moving, not just their arms, like swinging really hard or something else like that. It's because what's happening down low is always going to affect what's happening above and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As above, so below. <laughs> I, I, I try to, th yeah, to think of it to step like, so it's almost like if I'm thinking of why it's good to be able to, um, like if the, the class two lever is ball of the foot oriented, heels coming off the ground explosive, and class one is heels staying on, knee is going forward, uh, like a squat where you're really shoving your knees forward. 
the um it's almost like there's there's different there's there's unique benefits of both of those things um and the unique benefit of the class one with the heel down is that it's like it's everting the heel bone more right like it's causing more of a systemic like a loading because the heel bone will be everting more in that situation there'll be more pronation in that situation it's maybe a little bit longer of a thing than a quick heel off but and that loading that's happening is going all the way up the chain like it's um would it be expansion going all the way up the chain because it's heels it's supination i don't know i'm just trying to like kind of so I think of that as more compression all the way up the chain oh, and it. that compression. So that, that brings me back to the spring. Oh, so I as understand. You're on the heel, so remember yes. the, um, as the, um, curves in your spine increase and that sort of like compresses you down. That's what I think that provides is that spring that we're smashing. I, I understand that. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Got it. So that makes sense. So that's to me, ah, uh, I, I I got it. It clicked. So I would call that like compressive explosive strength in the explosive realm in the sense of like, I love um, like squatty running uh, if uh, with a Darian bar taught me that. And like, I love squatty running, but in squatty running, there is a lot more of a flat foot component than upright sprinting. And I never felt like, like I, it, it, I mean, eventually you will transition. The heel does come up, but that, um, so that's almost like a compressive strength and then more like that. Let's, I'm going to jump off one leg. I'm going to run and jump off one leg. Well, I'm not going to get to that lever. I'm going to, my heel is going to be off the ground by the time my knees forward in that one leg jump situation. Ideally, some people it doesn't, but so that's almost more of an expansive explosive strength in a way that I see it. So it's like, oh, okay. Got it. So anyways, cool. Now I think yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm on the track. I, I I got it figured out in my head. <laughs> now you can see my spring analogy. That it makes sense in my brain, but I've never actually tried to explain that to anybody. So thank you for <laughs> going along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've because I, I've been thinking about those concepts a lot with the different levers that we train for and what we see when we see what in athletic movement. Sometimes we do see a flat-footed situation. Sometimes we see the need for the heel to come off the ground quickly and realizing that one takes more a uh, compressive a compressive strategy and one is a more expansive strategy and mm -hmm. but it's almost like the bad situation is where the athlete would be <laughs> like they like they're they're really far what would it be like they're really they're they're living in expansion like they can't squat down or sorry they can't squat down but they're compressive because they're an anterior pelvic tilt if that makes sense i think i think that click hopefully like that athlete who can't yield like they're kind of compressed up top but they can't actually get down to use that compression maybe it would be um i don't know <laughs> i'm probably getting off yeah. the but i think i've i've kind of gotten to understand a little bit of what i'm talking about yeah i think you yeah you have to be able to yield to be able to create that force and then once you can do that then you can train the more uh stiff sort of like bounce off the ground quickly mm -hmm. like i think whatever you can train whatever you want to, to mm -hmm. create an adaptive change to whatever you're trying to create stiffness or compliance or whatever at the tendon, you know, but at the same time, there needs to be like a, what I see happening with people, like I have a client I'm thinking of right now is he's really high level squash player. His right foot is just super everted and flat. And he's always trying to push off that side. But because he doesn't have enough stiffness at the joint, he can't get that spring bounce. That same person is so far forward on his toes and living in that kind of flattened, pronated forward um, 
center of gravity that when I have him try to do some sort of yielding activity where like a drop catch or something, he's like muscling it. He looks like he's going to (laughs) explode. And I'm like, just, just relax and let yourself just like float into it. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's what happens when people lose that is the ability to sort of just allow their bodies to like drop and catch and just feel that relaxed control. And they try to like muscle all of that. And that same thing is happening when he's on the court is he's going into a shot and he's trying to muscle it because he can't get back to where he needs to, to create that effect. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about, um, with Olympic lifting, actually, I think I like a full catch Olympic lift a lot more than a power clean because especially it's a teaching moment in receiving the bar. And mm-hmm. it was, um, actually she'll be on the show eventually it was Edith, Edith Weiss, who was a big, like, um, she was written to like the pro, the probot X stuff or like that ball Marinovich work. Like a lot of that was her stuff. And she's talked about almost when stuff is too twitchy in the weight room, it can be not great for the nervous system. But I think about the reception of a bar, there's a rhythm to it where it's like, I'm catching this and I have to yield. And I, and cause if I don't, my collarbones are going to be killing me. <laughs> so yeah. it like forces you to, if you're catching there, at least, or at least on front delts, like it forces you to have a relationship in the yielding process. Um, so I, I know I've just been more and more, uh, I just had a client the other day I was work, we were working with, cause he's like kind of too tight and doesn't like, and I like, I'm not married to any exercise, but for me, like this exercise is a tool to teach you to yield. Not so much. If we want to teach velocity, we'll just do jumps and med ball throws. We can do that, you know, or bounds. And, but like that yielding, I really love for that movement. Yeah, that's a great point. I never thought of like a squat clean or and thinking of it like in that. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. And it does feel kind of good when you can own that position and feel it be like easy mm-hmm. where you're sort of just falling and catching. There's just something about that. I think that a lot of people, you know, and you think the general population, like if you trip and fall, you want to be able to yield a little bit. You don't want to stay so rigid that you can't absorb that force too, you know? Yeah, for for sure. And so just uh, I'll leave it here. And then well, I'm, I'm still like it's between the no toes and the different types of compression expansion squatting. <laughs> I really I'll have a lot of things to think about. But so someone who just struggles to yield in general, is um, that mostly deep squatting and really feeling the heels and getting everything back? I mean, are those like the main players in that situation? Or could you describe like someone who just can't yield super stiff? Um, and then how are you talking about the heels and things? I'm just curious how that all comes together. Yeah. So I've been playing around with a few different things that I think are really useful. Um, First of all, I think eccentrics are great. Um, That sort of slow kind of um, control. I love um, like yielding isometrics because I think you're kind of teaching the body to create that tension under length but it also allows you to kind of orient yourself because you have the time to sit there and Mm -hmm. spend with the motion. Um, But I've been playing around. So if we think about like contrast training, how we're sort of pairing um, like a heavy activity, stimulating the nervous system, and then going into a jump to like produce more force. I've been playing around with like the complete opposite of that. So sort of not doing a quick jump, like holding a heavy yielding isometric and then sinking into the ground, like doing like a depth drop, but instead of just like a reactive jump, you're just sinking into it. Um, and 
I have used it in my classes and I've actually programmed it into some of the empower performance programming because I wanted to see their take on it. And nine times out of 10, the people that can't fill their glutes, like at the bottom of a squat and utilize that, that's when they tell me, oh my gosh, I finally felt my glutes. And I'm like, cool. Like, I have no idea why this worked, but it, it made sense that we're sort of pairing that eccentric component of, of those two movements together, just like we would pair the concentric component in like a heavy lift with a quick jump. Oh, it's awesome. That's like, a, yeah, a dairy bar used to have, that was like a trip for me. It's like, we're doing jumps and instead of like the typical, like brace against the ground, punch the ground. Like, it's like, no, go into it, go down into it. And that was like a yeah. mind trip for me. I was like, oh, this is, amazing. this changed everything. Like this totally, and yeah. you're right. It does get your glutes way more. Cause it's almost like if you're trying to resist, you almost shut off the chance for those glutes to lengthen. Yeah. Yeah. And you never go into that internal rotation moment. And it's that internal rotation moment where the glute max lengthens and then we have to create the ER out of it. And in gymnastics, I think it always just felt very normal to me and wakeboarding too. There's some of the things you do are very reactive and quick. And a lot of the things you do, people don't realize this in gymnastics is like falling and rolling and catching and absorbing things. And so I just always innately thought, well, duh, that makes a lot more sense to, you know what I mean? Like elicit that change, but I I haven't like read any research on it or anything. And, um, I was even talking to my husband about it last night and he got me all annoyed because he sent me this research article on isometrics that like countered everything that I've ever learned. (laughs) Wait a second. I'm so confused. (laughs) I don't think there is like any specific research out there to speak to any of this it's just anecdotal which is yeah. probably annoying for a lot of people right now <laughs> yeah for sure yeah there's there's research that always yeah i was just about to say don't send it to me because i like i feel i feel like i finally got this isometric stuff figured out so if it changes my <laughs> mind now i'm just gonna be confused for a year uh but uh, I love that. I just, yeah, I love that. Just the, I just think so much about how in sport, naturally we, we yield, the brain will do it automatically. We're going to yield to into every jump cut, change of direction as is absolutely needed. And yet just the overarching, you know, thing we get in so much of sports performance is just punch, hit, strike. It's all very resistant in nature versus a yielding the yin and yang. Like there's a little bit of both. And so I just, yeah, I, I, I like to call it, um, and with the heel too, I've called it like, and in, in the elastic essentials course I just put out, it's like, there's the yielding plyometrics and like the more like bouncy class two plyometrics. And so it's like having both, like you need to be able to do both. Yes. And I think you have to learn the yielding. I'm not sure if this is correct, but it, it's how I set it out in EP too, is like, I'm learning the yielding as well as the, um, kind of compressive overcoming strategies at the same time because they're kind of reinforcing different things within the body that make you good at jumping yeah yeah it's just yeah. it's so cool it's it's awesome yeah. uh it's been awesome talking to you because i like i love it, it it makes me want to actually i was like oh i should um i'll do like a 400 meter squatty run and and feel the yielding and in my workout today like it's just it's thinking it gives me all these ideas of the things that either that I want to keep doing or even like validate some processes that I've had. Like I, when I'm doing squatted, squatted runs, are one of my favorite things, like I love just feeling myself almost yield on each step rather than trying to like slap at the ground or punch the ground. It's like, but then I'll go turn it around and do another type of running that is more like quick off the ground and things like that. Cause like, well, I don't want to be too stuck in the ground necessarily. I want to be able to get out of that and go to a different mode and now yeah. go into a mode where I am getting up to the 
late stance a little faster and more effectively. Uh, but it's just it's all like feeding the body these beautiful things. And I, yeah, we don't we don't yield nearly enough. We don't respect it. And the brain's ability to take this and turn that into a sp- explosive elastic power. Yep, exactly. Yep. Creating the spirals. Oh, and we didn't even get to that. Oh, I, I, it's we've been talking <laughs> for so long. I would love to get to that. Maybe I'll save it for next time. Uh, yeah, yeah, the nature and the great. seashells sure, and the spirals. Super fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. And yeah, we got um, maybe four questions in. So I have plenty for next time I talk to you and we'll have to start with the spirals and compression next time. Oh God, they're going to think I've just lost my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Or you found something really cool that we all need to check out. So I'm I'm excited (laughs) to ask you that. Okay. Thank you so much, Joel. It was great talking to you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for being on. Thanks again for tuning into the show. It was great having you all here. And that time, it's funny, it was such a long show, but when we were recording it, it just really flew by. Lots of information to learn and a lot of fun chatting with Katie. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. And lastly, if you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on whatever you're listening to, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. We'd totally appreciate that. All right, we'll see you next week.